When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the 430th episode of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and this episode was recorded live in front of an audience at the Boulder International Film Festival, shortly after my guest was honored with the Fest's Outstanding Performer of the Year Award. He is a Spanish actor who the Los Angeles Times called, quote, Spain's leading male star of his generation, close quote. Also noting, quote, not since Victor Mature was at the height of his career in the 40s has there been a male star of such bold sensuality, close quote. The New York Times, for its part, noted, quote, he has displayed a dazzling range that has made him part of that rare breed of actor, one who is capable of playing any role, close quote. Indeed, over the course of some 30 years in the business and dozens of films on both sides of the Atlantic, he has been nominated for an Oscar four times, winning once. He was the first Spanish performer of any gender to receive an acting Oscar nomination and also the first to win. And he is one of only two performers of any gender who has received multiple Oscar nominations for films not in the English language. And his mantelpiece also includes Golden Globes, SAG, Critics' Choice, and BAFTA Awards, six Goya Awards, Spain's equivalent of the Oscar, two Venice Film Festival Best Actor Prizes, and one Cannes Film Festival Best Actor Prize. And in 2021, as the Boulder International Film Festival acknowledged, he had a year second to none, starring in the Spanish entry for the Best International Feature Oscar, which was ultimately shortlisted, The Good Boss, also in Denis Villeneuve's sci-fi epic Dune, which is nominated for the Best Picture Oscar, and as Desi Arnaz and Ricky Ricardo in Aaron Sorkin's dramedy about I Love Lucy and its creators being the Ricardos, Javier Bardem. Over the course of our conversation, the 53-year-old and I discussed the family of filmmakers into which he was born and why he initially pursued a different path, the challenges and rewards of working in two different languages on two different continents, the projects which have demanded the most of him and of which he is proudest, both groups of which include being the Ricardos, plus much more. And so without further ado, let's go to that conversation. So I am a recently <laughs> awarded person, so yes, careful the, with what you ask. That's right. <laughs> that's a very dangerous uh, piece of exactly. equipment. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much again for being here. And uh, this is a podcast where, as, uh, as, your, as your wonderful wife, Penelope Cruz, discovered, I think, two weeks ago when she was my guest, we are going to go right back to the beginning and All cover right. uh, a lot in an hour. All so, right. Um, for anyone who may not know... Where were you born and raised, and what did your parents do for a living? I was born in Canary Island, which is uh, some islands in the, it's called Las Baleares, uh, in the south of Spain, near Africa. I was born in 1969, March 1st, uh, 
And yeah. Happy birthday, yes. 53 years old, two days ago. Um, gracias. I said Baleares, I was wrong. It's Canary Islands, sorry. They're gonna kill me for this in Spain. Um, but in Spain, they kill me for everything, so it doesn't matter what I say or what I do. Um, so my mother was an actress. She passed away seven months ago, unfortunately, but she was working as an actress in Canary Islands and my father was working there, he was doing his business, and I was born. And three years, three years after, we moved to Madrid, and I was raised in Madrid. So I kind of consider myself a madrileño, a person from Madrid, because that's where I was uh, grown. Now, you have understated how significant an actress your mother was, because she was a, a wonderful actress, and you come from a family that has been compared to sort of as a reference point for Americans and British people, you know, the, the Barrymores of Spain. Can you talk about who the other members of your family were who were also in the business before you? Of course. The father of my grandparent was an actor in the time where actors were not even uh, allowed to be buried on sacred land in Spain because they were considered homosexuals and prostitutes. Not that everything has changed. <laughs> uh, yes, there are many homosexuals and, and prostitutes, another job, as, uh, it's a job as many other. Uh, we should be also respectful with that. Uh, but that's a different conversation. <laughs> uh, but what I mean is the idea that some people have of our craft is like despising us, no? because with, it's a minor job, or it's a minor craft, or it's a minor whatever. It's, that happened especially in the Franco regime, dictatorship. My grandparents were actors, both of them. My mom was an actress. My uncle was a film director that really, really made history in my own country, and he was very active against the regime of Franco, and he was in, in prison for that. Uh, he won Cannes Film Festival, and he was the first Spanish director to ever be nominated for an Oscar. Funny enough, Juan Antonio Bardem. Yeah, Juan Antonio yeah. Bardem. Funny enough, in '58, and I realized when I won the Oscar in 2008 that that was exactly 50 years later. Amazing. <laughs> um, and then uh, my cousins are directors, script supervisor, musician, and producer. My brother and sister are actors. Because, and as I said uh, <laughs> the other day in the Saka Awards, I'm an actor. Yeah, right. What can I be? <laughs> well, now, you, I think, first were on screen at the age of six. There was like a TV movie that your mom was involved with. And then you were also on a kind of serial at the age of 13. But basically, you were not that gung-ho to pursue the family business. And in fact, through the years when, you know, a lot of people are in college and other stuff, you decided you were gonna go into painting, and did, and were very talented, and, and are, I'm sure still. Uh, but my question is, was that wanting to carve your own path? You know, what was that about, that you were not gonna do what everybody else was doing? I guess it was, I was, unfortunately, I was a very bad student. And I say unfortunately because if I was, if I am a student, if I, have, if I would be the student that I was back in the day, today, they will throw on me a different names, uh, like anxious, anxiety, whatever. I mean, those psychiatric names that are now thrown to kids so easily, by the way, in my humble opinion. I was just a nervous guy 
with lots to say, lots, lots to express, and I couldn't be sitting down for, for eight hours straight on a class. That's what happened. So I have, I have a way to, to express myself through my body, through my voice, through my presence, and since that was kind of forbidden, I started to paint it. <laughs> And, uh, and I loved it. I, 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 I tried to go in that direction, especially because I saw my mom going through a very hard time of unemployment. I mean, we all know that the people that we see walking the carpets, including myself today, it's the very little peak of the iceberg that covers a good 95, 90 to 95% of unemployment in actors. And I've seen that. I've suffered that. I went through the cold, I went through the anger, I went through many things that my mom had to go through with his kids, her kids, because the, the phone wasn't ringing. I didn't want that. But then the DNA takes place. <laughs> and I start to be the guy in the classroom that makes the funny things and wants to have the leading voice and, and I can really portray every teacher and I can mimic everybody in the class. So he's like, shit, I got it, I got it. It's in me, what can I do? And it's not easy to necessarily make much money in painting, so. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you can exactly. support your. It's not that I chose something to survive <laughs> yeah. and that would be, it would be very established. Yes. Uh, it was the opposite of that. So in order to, to keep on painting and, and, and supporting my studies for painting, I start to work as an extra in movies. And I, I work as an extra for three years. And believe me, every time I do a movie and I see extras, I feel so much for them because I know how, how, how hard the job is and how not taken care of they are. And, uh, and I, every time I can, I'm, I usually try to put focus on them and make the production be able to take as, as good care as they deserve. Uh, because uh, it's a hard job. And, <laughs> Then one day give me one line, two days they give me two lines, and it's like, okay, okay, what's, what, what's all of this? And they offered me uh, this movie called The Ages of Lulu. Yes. Which and, was my first feature. And we are definitely going to talk about that, but I think people should know that right from the outset of your career, you were also, you know, very active on the stage and distinguished on the stage. Was the ultimate goal always to be in movies, though, or would you have been just as happy to be a theater actor? Well, the funny thing is my mother was especially a very active theater actress. She's a legend in Spain now. She's a lady. I mean, everybody speaks of La Bardem like a kind of a goddess, and she was. And I've seen everything on stage happening. Uh, I remember one day, I don't know, I think it was seven or eight, that in a premiere night, <laughs> I was in the, in the green room, you would call, where she was getting ready. And as a game, I locked her in. <laughs> And the, the, the curtain opens. She was. She wasn't there. <laughs> and my mom was screaming, "Open, open!" And then finally, somebody kicked the door and opened the door. <laughs> and my face is like I was in the. I was like there. How do you call it? Like backstage. I could see the scream. I could hear the screamings, and I could see the, the stage. And I can enjoy that moment because it's like, <laughs> wow. So she's screaming because she has to be right. here. And there's people waiting. Wow. I was fascinated by the fact that she was in that <laughs> panic mood and then she would have to jump in and be the Queen Elizabeth. <laughs> so I guess that kind of put me, put some kind of a, 
uh, memory in me that's, is that, that says, don't do theater. <laughs> <laughs> well, so the, the reason that film kind of emerged as your, as your primary path was because of a person who I know was very important in your life and in your wife Penelope's named Bigas Luna. Can you talk about who he was and why he was such an important figure in your life? Yeah, uh, speaking of accidents, my sister went to do uh, a casting, uh, an audition for that movie. She asked me to accompany her. I said, okay, I'll go. I was sitting down, she did the audition and the casting director comes out. Would you mind to come in? No, me, no, I don't want to, no. I'm an extra, I don't do movies. <laughs> come, come here. So take off your shirt, really? <laughs> mm -hmm. Listen, I was 18, I was ready to take yeah. the shirt off. <laughs> like, okay, I do that every Friday for free. <laughs> so, and then they called me, because Luna called me, and he did another videotape, and he was like, is this serious, are you? I mean, what's, what's going on here? And then they gave me this role. Male prostitute. Male prostitute, please. <laughs> In the ages yourself. of Lulu. <laughs> So that's 1990, and now you have, it's a supporting role, but you made a big impression in numerous ways on uh, people. And then a year later. And can I yeah, say please. something? My mom, I play this male prostitute with net, how do you call it, net? Uh, like garter type yeah. thing, yeah. Or, yeah uh, sadomasochist, yeah. Um, and who does everything. Women, men, yeah. animals, whatever. <laughs> Just bring it on. And my mom was playing the owner of the brothel. <laughs> That, that, that is like a, that is like a first day of shooting for me. And I was killing a character, like choking her, and I was choking her for real, because I was so nervous. And my mom, she had to say, stop Jimmy, para Jimmy, you're gonna kill her. And instead of Jimmy, that was my name, says, stop Javier, stop Javier, you're gonna kill her, cut. And, and she couldn't say Jimmy name, yeah. it was my name, because she was so scared. <laughs> So from that great beginning, yeah. uh, <laughs> a year later, I mean, and Bigas Luna, we should say, I mean, the two probably, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but probably the two preeminent Spanish filmmakers of your generation were Bigas Luna and then Pedro Almodovar, who was your next collaborator in High Heels, a movie uh, that came out the next year, 91, which was Spain's Oscar submission. And again, it's kind of cementing you as somebody to watch in Spain. And all of this leads back to Bigas Luna a year later with a movie called Hamon Hamon. And in this, you're playing a truck driver who becomes an underwear model. I'm <laughs> sensing a trend here. Uh, <laughs> but uh, this time, this was a, a much bigger role for a Bigas Luna film. You were 21. Your 16-year-old co-star was Penelope Cruz. Tell me about, take me back to the experience of making that film. All right. <laughs> <laughs> I was 21, uh, and it was the first movie. I just said that I have a main role. I remember the, the fitting, uh, the wardrobe fitting. I get into a garage in Barcelona, and I saw this beautiful figure from the back with a long, curly black hair. And then she turns, and I go like, whoa. <laughs> and they said, she's Penelope Cruz. I'm saying, okay. And I thought to myself, and are they paying me to yeah. kiss her? <laughs> okay, I'll take it. 
And then we did the movie and we were so nervous. Jordi Moya, a great actor and friend of ours, was there as well. And we felt gifted by the chance, but also very nervous, insecure. But because Luna was really such a great man and he helped us to really love what we do and, and we felt absolutely respected and protected by him. Um, and I would say that thanks to him, we, the three of us, keep working on this. Because as we all know, first experiences in everything are very important. And that was actually our major first experience. And if it would have been more painful, maybe I would have said, oh, bye. But it was so delightful because of Bigas that that's why I'm here today. And, and that was 91. Yeah, and the movie came out in 92, 30 years ago. Um, now, big hit in Spain, seen around the world, and leads to international interest in you for the first time, including offers to come to work in the US. But you, I believe, were not that interested in the kinds of offers that were coming in at that point. They were kind of limited imagination, right? What was, what was the reason to stay in Spain when you would have at that point had a chance to come and work in Hollywood? Yeah, I mean, there were coming some roles, but they were not interesting compared to what I was doing in Spain. And I've never, I never had a, a map of actions. I never had a career uh, plan or anything. It's like, because I guess because of my mom's legacy, it was like, I go step by step. I know how hard this is. I just get a job. I'll try to do my best and I get a next job. But it's not like, okay, I'm gonna pack my bags and go to the States and do a career. I mean, that was, I was seeing people where some of my generation colleagues were doing that. And it was like, wow, that's brave. Well, the one that they were always trying to compare you to was Antonio Antonio, Banderas, right? Of course, of course. And kudos to him. And because of him, we are here as well as Spaniards. Uh, But but I, I felt, more safe, and also a very important little thing, I, I, I couldn't speak English. So <laughs> maybe that also helped for me to stay at home. <laughs> well, so basically when I was reading the parts, it's like somebody can translate what it's all this about. <laughs> well, so meanwhile, staying in Spain, let's just note a couple of other big roles before you did come over to the US. A struggling actor whose side gig is working for a phone sex company, in Manuel Gomez Pereira's Mouth to Mouth, Boca Boca, uh, released in 1995 in Spain, 97 in the US, the same year that people saw you in another Almodovar movie, Live Flesh, as a paralyzed policeman competing in the Barcelona Paralympics, and that one, again, acting opposite your mom. Yep. So I guess the first one, though, Mouth to Mouth, showed that you could do comedy as well, something that you had not had the chance to do before. Yeah, I guess that's, that was my thing. There was, there was, after the ages of Lulu and Hamon Hamon, they were asking me to play every kind of, uh, I don't know what's the word, like macho yeah, kind yeah, of yeah. thing. I was like, I know my face doesn't help, but what if I try to do something else? And I quit. It's not that I quit, but I stopped for a good year and a half until something new came. And that was the one, the comedia, a comedy, a comedy that will kind of show a different side. I tried, it was successful. Then they come in to do another thing that you may not mention now, which was a, um, a heroin addicted person, which is so far from me physically. And little by little start to build this idea of creating characters, which is what I like the most. Yes. Now these were all movies in Spain, but they were increasingly getting notice in the US, particularly the Almodovar movies, I think, which would usually be at New York Film Festival or, or Cannes where the industry goes. 
And I know one of the people who noticed you and was very impressed was the artist who was becoming a filmmaker, Julian Schnabel. How did you and he first meet? And then how did you and he, how did you learn that he was interested in you for a part, not the part that you ended up playing, but a part in his movie Before Night Falls, released in 2000, about Ronaldo Arenas, a gay poet and novelist who fled persecution in Cuba, came to the U.S. and contracted AIDS. A fascinating story, came a great film, but your involvement in it, had it kind of was another one of these accidents. Yeah. I was to I was invited into in 1999 to the party of the presentation presenting the San Sebastian Film Festival in New York. He was there. He told me, "I saw your movies. I have a role for you." And I thought, "Yeah, right." Like everybody, that's what everybody says. And then nobody calls. Okay, nice seeing you. He called. Yeah. Went, oh, okay. And he offered me the role that later would be done by Oliver Martinez, which is Lazaro, which I said, "Okay." I think I can do that because there are not many lines and I can. <laughs> then the actor who was going to play Reynaldo for whatever reason couldn't do it and he asked me one day, will you play Reynaldo? I said, no, no, I'm not playing that. I don't speak English. Well, you have a month. I said, oh, do I have what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll give you a month and a half. <laughs> so I went to the New York Harbor, sit down, think about it and said, listen, nobody's going to watch this movie. He's a painter. I'm in it. It's a Cuban gay poet. I mean, just do it. See what it is. Let's, let's try to see if I can perform in a foreign language. Cut to nominated for an Oscar. That's it. That was the first. Which is not to say something about me. It would be more about Julian. But what I mean is, you never know. That's you never it, know yeah. what's going to happen. Well, and, the, you know, let's also say, you didn't just have to learn English. You lost how many pounds? Uh... <laughs> I wish I could do that today. Uh, oh, no, in, 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 in number, but it was a lot. <laughs> I heard, and you, you don't know. I, I only ate salad and salad. 38 salad. pounds, yeah. I heard. Oh, a lot. Um, yeah. And then when you could speak Spanish in this film, it had to be with a Cuban accent, which was not something that. Of course. But anyway, um, and you had, I know, studied in Cuba and all that. So let's just say, en route to the Oscar, winning, you won the Venice Film Festival's Best Actor Prize. And then, yes, nominated for the Oscar, the first ever Spanish acting nominee, male or female, any of the four acting categories at the Oscars. What did that mean to you, to Spain, and to the kind of opportunities that then came in? Well, it meant for me something absolutely surreal. Oscars are those things that you watch at three o'clock in the morning at home, and you're never gonna get there. It's true that by that time, Fernando Trueba won already for uh, Belle Epoque and Jose Luis Garci for Begin to Begin. So we kind of knew that it was kind of possible, but for an actor, no. So what it meant is that I did a party in my home. It was a terrace, it was a seventh floor. And I was making interviews on the phone. And in the meantime, back in the day where the phones, it was a hard line, there were no cell phones. Hey, Javier, okay. Join me to the house because I have to do interviews. Okay. Then two hours later, I step out in the, in the living room and there were like 200 people that I invited it. So the elevator broke. It was a great party. We <laughs> called the firemen <laughs> and we ran out of ice and we asked the firemen to bring ice. Yeah. So they were bringing <laughs> boxes of beers and ice in the ladder. 
to a terrace. That, that's that's what, how big it meant. <laughs> because they kind of knew what we were celebrating. Right. Now, another thing that happens with an Oscar nomination is that a lot of people who you would not think might ever know who you are or see your work suddenly do. And I will quote something that you had said earlier in your career, I think before the Oscar nomination, when you did not know this person, you said, I don't believe in God, I believe in Al Pacino. <laughs> and suddenly, Al Pacino is calling you. It's, yeah, it was two o'clock in the morning. Again, hard lines, tape machines, recording tape machines, you remember those things? And they called, you, I woke up like somebody, somebody's dead, somebody, something's wrong. And then I hear Al Pacino's voice saying, I saw the movie with Julian and I love your performance. I want and I went there, I give to play, I give to play, and I think I stayed there for two hours. <laughs> I keep that tape with me, yes, of course. Yes. And that's the thing that you won't even, I, if I knew that back in the day when I went to the harbor, yes, yes. to see if I was doing that movie, I would have said no. If I knew that Al Pacino <laughs> was would. gonna watch it. <laughs> now, at that point, even having done Before Night Falls, you still, I know we're not super confident in your English, but I think you realize you better get more confident yeah. in your English because <laughs> now there are a lot of opportunities, some of which, correct me if I'm wrong, but I mean, you, you were not going to take the gamble and do a bad job. So like right after Before Night Falls, I think you got a call from Steven Spielberg yeah. to do Minority Report, yeah. the part that Colin Farrell ultimately played. And I'm sure you would have very much liked to work with Steven Spielberg, <laughs> but what happened? What happened is that he called me and I was like shaking. I went to, to meet him at his office and I, I just have to share with you that I saw E.T. 24 times on screen. <laughs> E.T. is my movie. Yeah, yeah. And I saw E.T. right there. Yes. <laughs> and then I was m more nervous than I can ex express with words. He offered me minority report and I felt I wish I could do it, but I don't have, uh, I don't have the the comfortableness of of playing a role so active, so dynamic in a language that I don't control, and also I don't think I am the right guy to play this role. And I shared that with him, and he was super sweet, super generous and careful, and he absolutely understood and supported me with that. And since then. We had a relationship, like we talked here and there. And of course, it's one of those things, let's say with Al Pacino, when you have such a big admiration for people and then you meet the people and you understand how great human beings they are, how careful, nice, sweet, talented, generous, fun, of course, their work goes like even higher. Yeah, and hopefully the, the day will come with no, It's uh, not like today when you're realizing how big of an asshole <laughs> I am. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, I mean, what can I say? I'm from Spain, and, uh, and I'm sure it's lost in translation. No, this is great. So continuing to work in Spain for the next few years primarily, there were a couple of other movies that we have to talk about, and, and I hope that if you haven't seen these movies, you're writing down the titles because these are as great, if not greater, than the stuff that you've done in the U.S., and so let's start with the dock worker 
in Fernando Leon de Aranea's Mondays in the Sun, another movie which was Spain's submission for the best foreign language film Oscar. This is a, you've said at that time, it's probably the movie I am most proud of. And I know it had to do with the subject matter. So can you talk about that? Yeah, it was a movie also, also, also because I went to the Oscars, I brought, I brought my mom, I brought, I mean, the noise, the, the echo, the sound around it is so huge for the first timer. So I went back home, like shaking, like, wow, I've been there and I survived. And also I was super excited to have been, to have been able to be part of it. But when this movie came to me, it was a movie in my own language, in my own land, about social situations that matter. So it was a great anchor for me to go back to what I love the most, which is perform. Yeah. After months of speaking about myself, which is something that I kind of like. <laughs> I'm an actor. <laughs> well, so that movie dealt with chronic unemployment, which in, in Spain, men dealing with that there. But then the next one, I have to say, and you've done so many great performances, but I don't know if it's possible to be better than you were in the movie, The Sea Inside. Elmar El Dentro. This is playing Ramon San Pedro, a quadriplegic for decades, who in his mid fifties is now fighting for the right to die. This is in 1990 Spain. You won, let's just note before we even get into more of the background, you ended up winning the Venice Film Festival's Best Actor Prize again. Let's just note the only other people, think about this company, the only other people who won that twice ever, Jean Gabin, Frederick March, Marcello Mastriani, Toshiro Mifune, and Sean Penn. That's pretty unbelievable. Um, another, another film which was Spain's submission for the Oscars. This was two years after Mondays in the Sun, and I want to ask you, you know, you had played a paralyzed person in Live Flesh, but this is now a movie based on a real person, true story. Not only is the guy paralyzed, but he can only move above the neck. And he was in his mid-50s. You were 34. So how does one prepare and go about doing for months, basically five hours of makeup a day before lying motionless in bed for 10 more hours, can't even move between takes because of continuity issues. Talk about just that project and the acting challenge, because if you have not seen this movie, folks, take my word, this is as good as it gets. <laughs> Thank you, Scott. Yeah. Uh, it's a great movie, and uh, it's one of those movies that really speaks about death, and it's a whole celebration of life. Because the guy, Ramon San Pedro, the real person, was really, really rooting for everybody's right to live beautifully and in the way they can and they, they wish, as much as rooting for the people who would like to die because they feel miserable with their own lives. And he did that through a very rational point of view. He was not mad. He was not depressed. He was absolutely uh, capable of... Yeah, he knew what was going on. Absolutely. He wrote books about it. So it was a, a very strong figure for, for human rights. And the preparation is always big when you do a real person. And in this case, it was more challenging because of the age difference. But I had Alejandro Amenabar near me, which is a great master and a great genius. And also, I had uh, lots of footage of him, including the, the last moment of his life, which I had to see several times, and it was hard to see. But that moment really 
trigger the whole journey towards that moment and helped me a big deal to be able with to talk to the family and and it was one of those movies that even if it was hard to be laid down for five days per week uh, for so many hours um, for four months I had a great fun doing it in the movie because I felt that we were doing something that mattered and yeah it was uh, absolutely So in the meantime, I know you were ex uh, intensively studying English to be able to do movies in the U.S. as well. And I think the first studio movie, it was a small part, dipping your toe into the deep end, but uh, for Michael Mann in Collateral, playing, you know, the guy who is sort of, I think, um, Jamie Foxx's... He was kind of a mafia, mafia kind of mob guy. guy, yeah. But that was the beginning of, of, you know, exposure to what it's like to make a big Hollywood movie before Night Falls was pretty independent. And this leads though to the one that certainly was the most high profile movie you had done up to that point. And that is No Country for Old Men, which when you first signed with your American agent years earlier and were asked who you wanted to work with, out of anybody. And this was, again, before you were you. Well, I've been me myself. You were still you, but... Uh, but, uh, yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. Who, who, did, you, who did you say? The Coen brothers. And how come? And uh, I was doing a radio interview back in the day in 2000 for Before Night Falls for the Oscar nominee, whatever, and I was crossing paths with the Coen brothers, and I remember being like, oh, so shy about it. So when they called me, I was like, Oh, yeah, I'm going to read it. And I read it, and it's like, what the fuck is this? <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. Yeah, yeah. So I went to the book. Cormac it made more McCarthy. sense, yeah, but not yeah. much more. Right, right. <laughs> and I sat down with them in New York and said, listen, guys, I, I love you. I adore you. I've seen every movie of yours. I cannot do this. I mean, I don't know what the role is. I don't speak English. I don't drive. I hate violence. <laughs> and they were laughing. That's why we want you. <laughs> That's why we like you. I said, no, no, well. So again, I went to the harbor in New York. Yes. <laughs> I said, okay, I'll do it. And uh, thank God I did. Yes. And that's because this character, Anton Chigurh, psychopathic serial killer with a bad haircut and a cattle gun. <laughs> As you say, it's, it's not a character, well, sort of reference the Cormac McCarthy uh, novel that inspired the script. We don't really know much about this guy. There's not any backstory. All we know is that he's like the Grim Reaper. When he shows up, somebody's not gonna come out of that room and, it's, and he is. So how does one play, let alone play well enough to win an Oscar, a guy like that? There's no information to work with. Yeah, and, and it's not even in the book either. Yeah. So I guess the whole work that you have to do about creating a backstory is about really erasing that backstory. And, and I try, but at the same time, it's like, okay, I'm playing a symbol here. Uh, it's a symbolism of violence itself. I'm playing violence. And when violence takes place, not, it's unstoppable, and it doesn't do any good to anyone. It doesn't fix, it only destroys. And you have to embody that. And they agree with that, and that will imply, I don't know, to play it 
in many options, as many options as you wish, but I guess we went with this very cold option that was triggered to me or was inspired to me by the blind guys of a shark when they attack, they go blind. Uh, they kind of not see what's what, what, what they're going to do. It's like they have a mission. And I, I did that, and for me it was tough. It was a tough shoot because I was shooting my own stuff. I didn't really cross paths with Josh or Tommy Lee Jones. I was killing people, <laughs> one after another. Yeah. God, and it's like, God, this is not my kind of movie. But, uh, so I didn't see what the movie was until I saw it, and I was blown away. And, uh, and, and the haircut happened because they brought a book with a picture of a brothel in the border with Mexico and Texas. Tommy Lee had uh, brought this, right? Yeah, the and, and the coins were, we want this guy. We want this look, and it was a guy holding two prostitutes with that haircut. And I thought, really, you want that? <laughs> yeah. And then Paul DeBlanc, which he was an amazing hairdresser, he did, and he did it like right there, and I saw it, and I said, fuck, this is genius. <laughs> and then you realized you had to walk around with that haircut exactly. for four months. <laughs> exactly, for three months in New Mexico. Yeah, right. <laughs> now, when that shoot wrapped, you were given a present. I only remember this because when I was just kind of starting out, it was around the time that you were just, I think you had been nominated, but had not yet won for No Country. So 14 years ago, I was lucky enough to interview you, you were just as lovely. And this story cracked me up. You gotta tell, so at the end of this, this shoot, sometimes you get a rap present, you get something, what did you get? I got a cake, uh, a cake with, uh, I think it was 17 candles, and in every country there would be a photo of the character that I killed. <laughs> to blow. And I realized how many fucking victims. It was so disgusting. <laughs> and the coins were like, ha, 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 yeah. ha. Because that's all, that's all they do. They just love it. But before that, they were, I had to wear a hairnet yeah. through the whole shoot. <laughs> like in the hairdressers. Oh, yeah, Salon. yeah, yeah. And, uh, which it was funny, to yeah, see with the cattle yeah. gun and a hermit. <laughs> and and the, the, the rap day, the, the, the last day of shooting, I was shooting in a, in, a, in a building and the elevator opens and everybody in the crew was wearing a hermit. <laughs> and that was another gift. So now you go back to the Oscars, Best Supporting Actor nominee, and this time you win. The first time a Spaniard has ever won an acting Oscar. And again, we've sort of established it's obviously a cool big deal to be nominated, to be at the Oscars, but to win a first for your country, take me back to that moment. Well, uh, thank you. That moment, uh, I, I took 17 people with me. Yes, right. <laughs> All my fellows, yeah. and since yeah. I was in school, and my friends and family. Well, I thought you were referring to the souls that you had. No, 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 <laughs> physically speaking. No, 17, the same yeah, number. Right. I just realized, wow, that's why. Okay. <laughs> that's good. Yeah. Uh, I brought, I brought yeah. 17 people with yeah. me, and uh, those Spaniards, yeah. oh, what a bunch of drinkers they are. <laughs> I let them lose the day before, and the night of the Oscars, I couldn't find them. <laughs> Guys, 
we have to be there on time. Uh, whatever. I, I was there. And mostly, the most important is my mom, which I brought. And, and uh, for me, the, the, it's great to be rewarded and to give an Oscar. But for me, my memory is to really be able to look at her eyes and tell her how much I appreciate her as a mother, as, a, as an actress, and the whole heritage of our surname and what it meant for the Spanish industry, for the Spanish craft. Yeah. Um, and uh, that moment really is more valuable than 100 Oscars. But the Oscar gave me the possibility of that moment. Absolutely. And I think it, it of course, is the foundation of the things that came uh, after that as more people in the uh, American film industry began to clamor to work with you, including in your next film, for which your wife to be, who you hadn't worked with in 26 yeah. years since Hamon Hamon, she's now in Vicky Cristina Barcelona for Woody Allen with you, and basically you're playing your unstable, mentally unstable ex-wife while you are the ladies' man who's off with Scarlett Johansson and Rebecca Hall, and she's plotting what to do about it. Um, <laughs> being back... <laughs> now, actually, the really kind of, aside from, I'd love to know, of course, what it's like to be working with her again, to be working with Woody Allen, but also people should realize you had consciously avoided doing kind of romantic comedy films since basically, what, like live... Yeah. Not, yeah, live flesh. Yeah, yeah. yeah. What, talk about that. Well, uh, when Woody Allen called me, I was in Berlin Film Festival presenting a documentary that I did, and I was blown away. And uh, I said, yeah, I'll read it. And then I was in London, and this guy talk, 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 called to my room and comes with a script. I said, thank you. And he was not releasing the script. <laughs> no, you have to read it in front of me. I said, really? Okay. <laughs> so I read it, and the guy was looking at me. And I say, I don't, I, it's hard for me to read in English. It's going to take a while. Okay. Yeah. Uh, but of course, I found it funny, and I found like it was a great experience to work with Woody. And, and, um, and it, it happened very quick. It was a five-week shoot. Woody will show up at 10 o'clock in the morning or 11, and we'll finish at 3 p.m. Yeah. One take. And how often were, were you guys uh, talking a lot with each other? Not much. Actually, Perop and I we were kind of avoiding each other. Yeah. Uh, in order to create that... Uh, no, chemistry. I don't even mean Penelope, although I want, I'm talking about Woody. No, Woody, Woody won't talk anything. <laughs> the, only, the, only way, the only day I went to him and said, but Woody, give me one, one more take, please. No. I said, give me one more take. What if, I don't know, what if an elephant crosses the, the screen? That would be great, <laughs> elephant crossing the screen. I said, oh, God. Uh, but Penelope and I, we are so pain in the ass that we made him repeat some, some of the takes. Yes. <laughs> Because we have the excuse of being foreigners. Yeah, right. Excuse me, I don't understand. Can we do one more? <laughs> and we, we, we take that from him. And also I have to say on his uh, behalf that there was this scene where I go to the two girls in the restaurant. There was a lot of dialogue. And that day, I was bad. I, I didn't have it. And he sat down. He was always looking through the camera, like near the camera. He sat down and he gave me all the time in their life to go over and over and over until I was happy. So he has that as well. Well, I, um, I also should note that my math is pretty bad because it was 16, still a pretty long time, but 16 years, I think, since 
Hamon, Hamon, okay. and you had worked with Penelope. And you had both been in Live Flesh, but she was in that Yeah, opening. she was working with my mom. With your mom, Yeah, right? yeah. <laughs> in, in, that, in that movie. Crazy. Okay, now comes a movie which allowed you to work. I think it wouldn't have necessarily been possible had you not had the profile that had been raised from the Oscars and all of that, but in your own language. And that is a great movie called Beautiful, directed by Alejandro Iñárritu. The character you're playing is this small-time criminal in Barcelona. He's got two kids, and he's diagnosed with a life-threatening illness. You end up winning the Best Actor Prize at Cannes Film Festival, another Oscar nomination. But talk about how you and Iñárritu connected. This guy is one of the very few, I think one of only two people in history who won back-to-back Best Director Oscars for Birdman and The Revenant, is that right? And um, yeah. and in this case, this was the beginning of him really kind of taking off in, in at least in the US. So just meeting him, why he wrote this part for you and why you have said that shoot was probably the most grueling of all. Well, I, I think Alejandro is a genius of a director and he's by far one of the best actors, director that I have the chance to work with, and I will always have the chance to work with. The movie was demanding for everyone. It was also his first story with one character alone. He was always writing these three parallel stories happening at the same time. Yeah. This was the, old, the first one where one thing will happen to one person alone. And that was a lot of weight, dramatic weight for an actor to hold onto. And uh, it's a movie that took us a good five, six months to shoot and to be such a long time in that state of mind or emotional state, it's draining. But uh, we all knew that it was a hard mountain to climb, but if we ever get there, it will be worth to do it. And I think the movie is a beautiful, it's a beautiful piece and it's a beautiful love letter for unconditional love to the kids, Absolutely. to children, and to also the empathy for the foreigner. Uh, and it's a movie that I'm very proud of. It's great. Now, one of the cool things about becoming a bigger star around the world. I'm sure there are the downsides of being uh, not being able to have a dinner without getting interrupted or whatever. But one of the cooler things is probably that for a guy who grew up like so many others watching James Bond movies, you get to be a Bond villain, <laughs> Raul Silva, in the movie Skyfall for Sam Mendes. Now, the thing that people may not realize is that you had actually had that opportunity yeah. Many years earlier, 13 years earlier, when Pierce Brosnan was still Bond, in the movie, The World Is Not Enough, but you turned it down. Why no the first time, but yes the second time? The first time, because again, it was kind of bigger than I could have achieved. The, the, the English language and also playing something that I was not capable of doing with kind of a layer into it. It was very one piece kind of a role. When Sam Mendes called me and said, what about this? He told me about the idea of this character that his ultimate goal is to really make James Bond uncomfortable, no matter what. And I said, mm, that's funny. Yeah. What can we do that hasn't been done already? And it's the physicality, the, the sexuality, the, the thing where you cannot frame what it is, but it makes him lose a little bit of step. And we had so much fun doing it. And it's by far one of the most 
uh, rich experiences, personally and professionally, that I've ever been. And one of the creepiest Bond villains ever. <laughs> this guy is literally rotting, literally inside. and metaphorically, yeah. from the inside out because of what did he? What had he taken? He, he had a, a cyanide. Yeah, um, and uh, survived. <laughs> and survived, and he's burned in the yes. insides. Yes, amazing. But I was. Uh, I have to say that there was this scene where I was in a crystal uh, cell. And Judy Dench comes and, and, and action, and I lost the lines. <laughs> and Sam, what's going on? I said, well, I just realized I'm in a fucking James Bond movie. Yeah. Right. I mean, it's, it's so cool. Uh, James Bond is looking at me, right. M is coming here. Yeah. Shit, let me take it. <laughs> they were laughing, and then, okay, action. And she comes in, and then uh, there's a ringtone on the cell phone that goes, pam, 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 pam. Silence, and it was Judy Dench. Ah. Ringtone. I said, what the, what the hell is this? That's a... So it took us a while to get serious in that scene. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, there are so many other roles that we could talk about, but I'm going to bring us to the crazy 2021 that you had for which you've been honored tonight here at the Boulder Film Festival with the Performer of the Year Award. And it's totally makes sense because how many people, let's just give the overview before we go into each of these. First one is a movie called The Good Boss, which was Spain's Oscar submission. Um, you're playing a factory owner who meddles in the lives of his employees. That's one. Number two, you are Stilgar, the, the leader of one of the tribes in Denis Villeneuve's movie Dune, which is nominated for the best picture Oscar. And number three, both Desi Arnaz and Ricky Ricardo, who he's playing, two characters in Aaron Sorkin's being the Ricardos, for which you are nominated for the Best Actor Oscar. All in one year, three movies. There's not too many people who had a year like that. Um, let's start with The Good Boss, because it has always been a thing with you. It's not, all right, I'm quote unquote going Hollywood and I'm done with Spain. You are always back and forth. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's where I live. I live all the time there. I live there and I, I pay my taxes there. And it's, uh, <laughs> that's where I, I, I grew up and I belong to. But I've been very blessed and lucky to be able to work outside of Spain. And, uh, and um, The Good Boss, it was the first movie, I think it was the first Spanish movie to ever being shot in the pandemic era. So we were very scared uh, in Madrid. But Fernando Leon, writer and director, a uh, good friend of mine, I love this story. It's a, it's a dark comedy that works beautifully in everywhere, uh, not only in Spain. And, and, um, and we were so in love with the story that we wanted to do it. And it was kind of challenging because my character is a man who really invades other people's personal space. So you have to touch, you have to hug, you have to kiss. You have, and I was like, we were all like paralyzed. <laughs> and it took right, me a right. while to lose the body and to give myself permission to do so. And, um, and then right after that, I went to finish Little Mermaid, shoot Little ah. Mermaid, because Little Mermaid was canceled uh, in 20, in, for the pandemic. So I went to do King Triton. And while I was doing King Triton, they told me, they gave me the role of Desi. And again, they told me, you have a month and a half. Always a month <laughs> and a half. I don't know what happened with them. Well, before we even go to that, though, so Dune had been the first of Dune all. Dune was shot in 19. Okay, so. But, but it was... Uh, the release was in 21 yes. because of the, the pandemic. pandemic, of course. Now, Dune, I'm trying to think, I guess 
Maybe Skyfall would be the one, but has there ever been a movie that was a larger scale production that you've been a part of? No, Dune was the second one for sure. But the good thing is like, in both cases, Sam Mendes and Denis, they are such a great, they have such, such a great artistry. They love what they do, and they make you feel, they make you feel that you are in a very small independent movie yeah. because of their passion. The way they hold the camera and they, and they explain to you things, and they are so excited about showing you the work, and they are so involved in really making you feel comfortable and part of the team that you don't feel, you don't see the monster behind. You know, yeah, and, and that makes you, at least to me, makes you feel more comfortable and more relaxed with yeah. it. Yeah. So, being the Ricardos, you were pursuing this part before Aaron Sorkin or anyone else who ended up involved with it was involved. Yeah. What, what was the root of your interest in him? Was, was, did you grow up with I Love Lucy in Spain? Not really. I Love Lucy wasn't as popular as, it's, as it was here. But uh, once I heard about that project, I knew who Lucille Ball was, kind of. I went to dig in, I went to investigate, and I saw him. I saw both of them. I started to see the episodes, and I was madly in love with them. Like, wow, what a couple. What, what they meant, what they create. I mean, the revolutionary, how revolutionary they were in many aspects. So I was kind of obsessed, and I kind of felt, I don't know, linked to his energy. I could relate to that energy. Uh, and I wanted to play that energy because it's something I haven't played very often. Even, I don't know if I've ever played it. So I, I chased it and it took a good, I don't know, four, four or five years. Years, wow. Now, once Sorkin became involved as the writer and the director, he's always said he likes to work. He says he's like a dog. They actually like being kind of, they're comforted by confinement sometimes in a crate or whatever. And for him, that means with Steve Jobs, it's going to be three, the structures, three presentations of Apple products, or in this case, it's going to be the making over the course of a week of one specific episode of I Love Lucy while all these other things are going on in their lives. So this was, a, this is based on a real episode called Fred and Ethel Fight. And I guess was that sort of the the North Star for you and Nicole Kidman, who plays Lucy and everybody in terms of, you know, how do you how do you prep to play this guy? I guess was, you know, specifically focused on that episode? Yes, absolutely. And that was the episode that will trigger kind of our approach to, in this case, Ricky Ricardo. But Aaron told us from the first moment to go, I don't want any impersonation. I want real people because that's the story that I am more um, uh, interested in telling. But of course we are actors. And I know Nicole, JK, Nina, everybody was trying to approach right. those characters as, as much as we could without losing the line, the guideline that the script has, and without getting into a kind of a mimic imitation, because that won't make any favor to anyone. So it was challenging in the sense that it took me a, it took me a lot of work to get there, and, but at the same time, the good thing is that, in a funny way, I wasn't aware of how much of an icon he was until I finished the movie. That is good. Because otherwise I would, have, I would have said no, <laughs> maybe. Yeah. yeah. Well, and in addition to, you know, being an actor and a uh, executive, because Desilu Productions, of course, was mm. a big, he was also, of course, a singer and a band leader, which meant Javier Bardem, who I believe is not a singer or a band leader, had some work to do. Yeah, you should see the face of the person who was <laughs> teaching me singing. <laughs> 
Her name is Fiona McDonald. She's great. She's from Scotland, but lives in London. And uh, it was everything was through Zoom. Oh, right. And so let's start from the beginning. Okay. Do, 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 do. No. She was so cool. Yeah. We have some work to do, Javier. <laughs> you bet. <laughs> and we did. We spent hours and hours and hours. And then there's a moment where the voice comes out. And you go like, wow. Yeah. And it felt so good. And it's a muscle. It's a muscle. If you, everybody can really sing. You have to train. You have to train. No, 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 no. No, look at my, no, no. No, 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 no. You don't want that. Now, setting aside all of that, just from the acting standpoint, is there anything harder than playing someone who's playing someone? It was fun to play yeah. the, the in, in the case of, of Desi, it was kind of similar. It was more different with Lucille Ball and Lucy Ricardo. The voice beat and everything that she, Nicole, do so, does so beautifully. Desi was kind of the same person, yeah, yeah. a little bit more high on the high pitch when he was in front of people because it's normal. It's what you do when there's a theater full of people. Uh, but... Uh, he was that energy, and that's what I liked. Like, he won't change. He was that man, and he was going with that energy all over the place, meaning he won't give up in front of anybody, not even the Philip Morris, yes. like in the movie we see, no? Right. Don't fuck with the Cuban. Yeah, exactly. It's a great line. And, and working with Aaron Sorkin, I have to say, it's a, it's a dream come true for any actor. To have those words, to have those scenes, to have those characters. The first time I read the script, I have to stand up and shake the body because <laughs> I was so nervous. I was so much wanting to say those lines. I, I had my first Zoom. He was not convinced that I would do the role. He, they were looking for other actors. And I always say, listen, I don't know if it's going to happen or not, but thank you for allowing me to read your script because it's a, that alone is an amazing experience for an actor. Now, I, absolutely everyone recognizes he is one of the greatest writers ever. Um, but he also, it's not easy to act in one of his movies because he likes to shoot fast and he wants you to stick to his dialogue. There's no improvising at all. And, um, they're, it's, they're very verbose characters, not in a, not in a bad way, but that's, there's a lot of material. You guys had 38 days to do this during the pandemic. What's it like having to learn and deliver Aaron Sorkin dialogue? Well, you have for sure to learn those lines, and, and, and you should, because there's so there's a lot of work behind those lines. There's a lot of uh, intelligence and, and sense of uh, drama. I mean, he knows what he does, and of course you have to stick to those words. Again, I'm the foreigner. <laughs> playing a foreigner, right, right. so I, I, I had that bullet also, <laughs> and and he was super respectful and nice, and and I was very envied, envied, yeah, yeah, envied, by the yeah. rest of the cast yeah. because I was the one who will say, can I have another one? <laughs> yes, <laughs> uh, and I will change one word here, one word there because I said I don't think my character would say that word because I don't think he was so good in English. Yeah, yeah. So I was the man who changed Aaron Sorkin. <laughs> Somebody broke no, the glass ceiling. You, yeah. But let me tell you, I, they, they don't need any change. They are beautiful. They are perfect. And, uh, and it's true. He likes to shoot fast. Yeah. He, 
He does one take to takes the most. And basically what he does is the whole scene. So it's very much like theater. Yeah. But it's great to have that as well because it makes you build, it makes you be alert. It makes yeah. you be aware. It makes you be really playing with the other one. So we've talked about the fact that going back 30 years, you have worked numerous times with Penelope before and after and before and since she's been your wife. Here is a character who every day for years is going to work with his wife and they have very high highs, very low lows. Take me into that aspect as you're approaching these characters. You know, is that something you could even, you know, fathom doing with your, you know, and, and uh, not having bumps along the way right. with the spell? I, I think that's a challenge. And also yeah. back in the, I mean, today the world is a different world than it was in the 50s, of course. I mean, the whole social media and the instancy of, the instant moment of everything being recorded and put it out there immediately and the echo of that, it's, it's a different life world than it was in the 50s. But again, to be able to maintain that combination of private and public, it must be very hard. And I think that was one of the reasons why the marriage, I'm saying the main reason, but yeah. one of the reasons that the marriage had some problems because it's human, it's, 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 it's a lot, it's a lot. For so many years with the public eye on top of them. I mean, it's, it may not be easy, for sure. So the movie comes out and drops on Amazon where you can watch it if you choose, but gets extremely well received for the entire group of the, it's really the central four quartet of you, Nicole, J.K. Simmons, and Nina Arianda. Um, and then Oscar nominations morning, you've been through this, but let's talk about the difference this time. Oh, yeah. You are nominated for best actor in the same year that your wife is nominated for best actress. It's pretty spectacular. Um, I said, darling, we're gonna watch the nominations live now. Yeah. <laughs> she never watched it live. No. I, the opposite of me, I yeah, watched yeah. it live. I go, no, we're, because we know and we knew that it was going to be very, very, very difficult that it will happen. But if it happens, I wanna see it. Yeah. So it took me a while to convince her. We finally, I finally did, we put the TV on. It was a small sofa. We get together. <laughs> and the first name is my name. Yes. Javier Bardem. The first it was the best international feature yes. for the good boss. Yeah. Didn't happen. That was a down. Yeah. Then it was Javier Bardem. The first name, which I knew it was going to be the first one because of the B. Yes. Yes. I heard. I was like, wow. Okay. And she was like jumping. I said, no, 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 no. Wait, 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 wait. Wait. This doesn't make any sense if you are not in. And then, Hertzcom is Justin. Coleman, and she says, too many C's. <laughs> and she said that. Penelope Cruz, and yeah. that was the moment where I jumped yeah. and hugged her. Yeah. And I don't know how to translate that, but it's like, now yes, now yes, now yes we celebrate, now it makes, now it's something to celebrate. And she was absolutely taken by it. We, were, we both were taken by it, and it's a miracle. It's, it's, such a great thing, it's a gift. It's a, I don't know how to say it, it's, it's everything. It's everything in the sense that mostly I'm so happy, I'm humbly, I mean, gratitude for being there. But in her case, it's a, it's a role in Spanish. And that's a big thing. It's her second time in Spanish. Yep. It's a big thing. And, and it will be very happy if she wins. I know 
I have the heart divided, of course, as you can imagine, but she's my wife. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I adore her. I, and I think, I think because that alone, because of the, the Spanish thing, it's very important. And she's amazing in the movie, as Nicole and, and Jessica and Olivia and Kristen. But uh, it made me very happy to really, it, it makes us very happy to, to share this. It's, it's very special. So thank God. I convinced her to see it. Exactly. And not only that, I recorded it. <laughs> oh, you did? You I have, have it on video. your phone? Oh, that's yeah, awesome. Yeah, I have a video. I have it here. That's so cool. <laughs> well, very well deserved. It's so exciting. We wish you guys the best of luck on March 27th. And thank you again for coming to Boulder to do this. We thank really you so much, Scott. Thank you. Thank you so much. Can I say something? Yeah. Be because the podcast, you can finish the podcast here, no? There's a lot of people here that you were doing a line. Are we, are we capable of asking you to make some questions? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, are you okay with that? I mean, yeah. Okay. Good. So Thank if you, you raise your head, yeah, no, this is so nice. Um, let's start right here. I'm going to just repeat the question so that everybody can hear it. Her son is a director, a student, a student to become a director, and uh, she... she likes the way that you have spoken about the role of directors in your life, what would you say the most important advice for an aspiring director is? I have the chance to work with amazing directors and they're all good people. I mean, it's about the humanity, it's about the good person behind the role that we play on a set. The energy of a director is the energy that rules a set. So the technical stuff, he will get there. It's about being aware that he's relationship with the crew is gonna really create the atmosphere that's gonna rule the shoot. And that, has, that is way more than important than the framing, I think. Because it's from there where the love, the passion, and the trust from the actors are born, are born from. From, the, from, from, being, from feeling safe and protected. Because we are very vulnerable. I mean, it's not that we are special. What the fuck, we are. Huh? <laughs> uh, but when you are playing certain scene or certain role, like when I was doing the Ages of Lulu with the net thing, <laughs> you are in a vulnerable place. And thanks to Bigas Luna, he made me feel, don't worry, I, he made me feel like I was doing it just for him. There was a camera rolling, but he made me feel like, don't worry, I'm, I'm here for you. That's the most important thing I would say to him. Let's go to our next question. The question would be, you know, kind of what you think the future of Spanish language films are in the U.S. I will just add a, a quick note to that, that we are in a moment where the most watched show ever on Netflix is now the Korean language Squid Game. So it does seem, and, and we're coming off Two years ago, Parasite, a Korean language film, won the Best Picture Oscar. Seems like subtitles are less scary for people than they used to be, right? Yeah, it's true. Uh, I don't know. I, I, I don't know how to answer that. I wish it would be more. Uh, but I think, I think that it's, as you said, Scott, uh, the audience is less scared to read subtitles. And I think we should thank the platforms for that. Yeah. Because they are more willing to see international feature with the commodity with the commodity of their houses and put the subtitles and without the anxious with the without without the anxiety of being on a screen and figuring out if they're gonna lose anything. I think uh, the the Oscar branch is more international. Yeah. 
and is welcoming more the international work. And let's not forget, Hollywood itself is very international. Yeah. I mean, you go to Dune set, and there's people from everywhere. I don't know how many Americans there were. Yeah, right. But right. it's like, it's like, and that's that's the greatest thing about Hollywood. It really brings a lot of talent from all around the world. So we shouldn't be scared about international, yeah, what yeah. it's called international. Go ahead. So, to, to repeat, what advice would you give your children, the children of Javier Bardem and Penelope Cruz, if they said they wanted to go into the film business? I don't know. I mean, I can tell you that they are not doctors, for sure. <laughs> or architects. Uh, I can see that. I can see that. I mean, it's, it's a tough one. It's a tough one because, as I said before, Penelope and I, we are a very strange example of success that doesn't have to do anything with the work we do. We both are from Spain. We have built a huge, beautiful, amazing career doing what we love, both in Spain and out of Spain. We still keep on earning our salary doing what we love. We are appreciated by you guys, which we thank you for. And that's not useful. So when anybody says, I want to be an actor, I go, I feel the same thing that I, I felt when I was young and my mom was doing theater and she was unemployed. And I go, okay, okay. If, if it really matters to you, if it really, really, I don't know, opens up a channel of passion and communication and you feel that you don't know to do anything else but act, go for it. But if otherwise, ugh. But also in the same place, what jobs out there are safe, as we call it? That's I don't right. know. So Not at journalism. least you have a passion, yeah. go for it and pray. Yes. <laughs> Javier Bardem, thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks very much for tuning in to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or your podcast app and to leave us a rating as well. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash Scott Feinberg. Until next time, thanks for joining us.